Magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. Uh, that's kind of the theme of our uh, sermon yesterday, and, or last sa- Sunday and this Sunday. We're continuing in Ephesians chapter 4, from wealth to walk. Um, and, and you know what? When we realize all that God has done for us through His Son Christ, we understand how wealthy we are, how uh, blessed we are. Um, but there should be something that responds to that gratitude, that wealth that God has given to us. And that should transform over into our walk. Because of that magnificent, marvelous, matchless love, you and I should walk in a way that others know how amazing our great God is. And as I was getting ready for church this morning, there was a song on the radio that I wanted to read the lyrics to because it is just an awesome reminder of all that God did for us from being unsaved outside the family of God to bringing us into the family of God, all part of his plan. The song's called King of Kings. It goes like this. In the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light. Till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets. To a virgin came the word, from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. To reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost... To redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side. Knowing this was our salvation, Jesus, for our sake, you died. And then verse 3, And in the morning you rose, all of heaven held its breath, till that stone was moved for good, for the Lamb had conquered death. And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe, for the souls of all who'd come to the Father are restored. And then verse 4, and the church of Christ was born. That's you and I, the church of Christ was born. Then the Spirit lit the flame. Now the gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom I am free for the love of Christ who resurrected me. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. Wow, that is what happened because of Christ's death on the cross of Calvary, because of God's plan in eternity past to reconcile lost men to himself. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they plunged us into everlasting darkness and separation from God. But God didn't throw his hands up in the air and say, oh no, what am I going to do now? He knew that that was going to happen, and so he planned an eternity past for those he would call, those he would bring to himself, those he would redeem through the death of his son on the cross of Calvary to be part of his family. And as part of his family, we are the recipients of the inheritance of Jesus Christ. All the wealth of heaven is ours because we are part of God's family. So we move from wealth 
to walk. Last week we started to look at Paul's challenge to the Ephesian believers. And that challenge is not just to them, but through preservation, God has given us his word. He's kept it secure for us down through the ages. So as we open up the pages of scripture and we read the book of Ephesians, and particularly chapter 4 this morning, uh, we are going to see that, you know what? Yes, we are wealthy, but that should make us, that should cause us, that should create within our hearts a desire to serve him, to honor him, and to live for him. In fact, Paul has challenged the believers of all ages to a certain walk. Last week we did a Pepsi challenge, okay? And Cindy held true to her roots of, of loving Pepsi more than she likes Coke. Um, Jim was not so sure. He, he thought he was a Pepsi man, and as he tasted, he hadn't drink, doesn't drink soda anymore. He hasn't for a while. Uh, but when he tasted the Coke, he was more drawn to the Coke. And you know what? In that kind of a thing, you can choose Pepsi or Coke. It doesn't really matter. Can I tell you this? It has no eternal effect on our lives, except sometimes it might help you get there quicker. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, <clears throat> um, that's really irrelevant as far as our life for Christ. But the challenge that Paul is issuing here in Ephesians chapter 4 is so very relevant. When we accept that challenge as we should, when we take up that challenge, when we run that gauntlet, if you will, we are not just impacting our own lives, but we're impacting the lives of others all around us, whoever God brings across our path. So what a challenge it is that Paul has issued to us. And really that challenge, it boils down to this. It boils down to living like Christ, to being like Christ. Christ likeness is the call for every Christian. Every person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ should be striving every day of their lives to be more and more like Jesus. More like Jesus today than yesterday. More like Jesus today than last week, last month, last year, last decade. Uh, however long you've been uh, a child of God, you should be more like Jesus today than you were when you first started the race. When you first started that walk. Paul's challenge, strive to become more and more like Jesus Christ. God can use that in your life to impact the lives of others. God can use your Christ-likeness to bring others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as we live out the gratitude that we have for God through Jesus Christ, it has the opportunity for us to communicate God's love to others. Let's quickly review where we were last week, and then we'll jump into uh, the conclusion of our study in verses 1 through 6. As we got to the end of chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians, we saw the incredible things that God had done for us and made available to us. And because of those amazing things in chapter 3, God, Paul now challenges us to have a heart full of gratitude, and that out of that gratitude, service to God would flow from our lives. Um, so in verse 1, of chapter 4, we see the challenge to walk. The challenge, Paul says, I beseech you, I beg of you. There's Paul's appeal here to the Ephesians and by the Holy Spirit extended to us. I implore you, I really beg you to walk as Christ would walk. I summon you, if you will, to stand before the court of the world and live out your life in a way that reflects Jesus Christ to those around you. It's a specific calling for every child of God to live like Christ. Now, so 
as difficult as that may sound, it should really be our ambition. It should be our desire. He says, I, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You see, each one of us have been called to live for Christ and to represent Christ in this world. The word walk there is used to describe the day-to-day life, the conduct by which you and I should be living life. And he says walk worthy. That word worthy means to balance the scales. The scale that Paul's talking about is the scale of walk and talk. Don't just say that you're a Christian. Live like you're a Christian so that others will see it. Others will know it. Others will want what you have. We live in a world where everybody's trying to keep up with everybody else. And Paul says it should be your desire to live your Christian life in a way so that others would want that same Christian life that you have. Should want that Savior that you have. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This is actually the very core of the challenge, as we said. As children of God, we have been called to Christ-likeness. That's the calling for every child of God. Every person who names the name of Jesus Christ should be striving to become like Him. Paul's reminding us that we've been chosen to become like Christ. There must be evidence in our lives that we are becoming more and more like Christ. So, rather than the Pepsi challenge that we had, we're issued here by the Apostle Paul the Christ-like challenge to become more like Jesus. So in the next couple of verses, Paul gives us a couple of things that help us determine how we are going to accept this challenge and, and, and walk this challenge and win this challenge, if you will. He says, first of all, here are the characteristics of our walk in verses 2 and 3. Start off with lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. Realizing that our worth without Jesus amounts to nothing. What is, Paul, what is uh, the prophet Isaiah said? All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. So all of the good things that we are trying to muster up and that we are trying to do outside of Christ amount to nothing. And that helps us understand, wow, I can't accomplish this challenge. I can't accept this challenge. I can't take up the challenge, the Christ-like challenge, without humbling myself. There's a lowliness of mind. But in Christ Jesus, wow, I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I'm a child of God. And there is immense worth in the child of God. Without Christ, our worth will only get us a place reserved in hell for all of eternity. i got to tell you, that's not worth much, is it? I think we'd be willing to trade it for just about anything. And God has already provided for us the means of making that trade. We call it, in theology, we call it imputation. It's a big fancy word for you. Where, where God took my sins and your sins and placed them on his son, Jesus Christ, when he hung on that cross. He, God the Father couldn't even look at his son when he was burying my sins and your sins. And the flip side of that coin of imputation is that God then not only took my sins and put them on Christ, but he took Christ's righteousness and he placed it within me, his child. Hardly a fair exchange. But you know what? The only way for us to be made right with God 
We couldn't make sacrifices. We couldn't do enough good works. It had to be the shed blood of the Son of God on the cross of Calvary. I must humble myself and accept that gift and then live my life out as a result of that gift. It's all about Jesus. It's all that he does in and through me, not of who I am and what I have to offer. Lowliness of mind. And then he talks about this idea of meekness or gentleness. Um, we, we talk about that word around here, uh, meekness and gentleness. We've studied it many times in the past. Um, it's a characteristic that is to be found in godly people. Gentleness is something that God calls all of us. And you know what? Jesus modeled that gentleness while he was here on earth. This all-powerful son of God who spoke the world into existence demonstrated meekness, gentleness. We talked last week how uh, men, at least when I was growing up, men were raised to be tough and rugged. And, and the Marlboro man, he kind of was the, the icon of, of really what a man was like. Minus the cigarettes, we never, uh, we never espoused that, all right? Um, but anyway, he was tough and he was rugged and, and, you know, wow, what a man! We don't often associate this idea of gentleness with a man's man. But you know what? Jesus was gentle. Jesus was humbled. Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. Paul tells us that when we take up the challenge of Christ-likeness, gentleness will be on display in our lives because it's a model that Jesus set for us. From lowliness and meekness, he moves on to this idea of long-suffering, or if you turn that word around, it's suffering long. It's the idea of being slow to avenge yourself when wronged. Now listen, Jesus has every right to avenge himself. And yet what does scripture teach us? That he despised the shame. He willingly went to the cross. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and, and gave up his life on the cross of Calvary. He suffered to the very end so that you and I could be reconciled and redeemed. Another example that he sets for us that we must suffer long in this life. As we share the gospel with others, we might be rebuked, we might be mocked, we might be scorned. But you know what? That's okay. Because that's what happened to Jesus. Falsely accused, falsely put to death, and yet it was part of God's plan to redeem mankind. He goes on and he says we need to forbear one with another in love. This idea of forbearing or bearing with one another in love means that we bear up, we hold up under, we endure through the difficulties of putting up with one another. Hey, we all know how difficult it is sometimes to put up with one another, right? It's not always easy. Sometimes it's quite a challenge. But God gives us the strength to do that if we allow him to give us that strength and live in light of that strength. We forbear with one another in love. And then he says, here's a big one, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This means that we're going to make every effort to keep unity in the body. Now, 
I say every effort, but we're not going to do that at the expense of compromising God's word or what God teaches in his word. This is what you and I hold to. It is our rock. It is our firm foundation. It is our sole authority for faith and practice. Um, and, and so as we strive for unity and strive for peace, we can only reach that peace if we're striving for the peace of God, the same peace that is outlined for us in the pages of Scripture. It's hard work. And even after all the hard work, we might look back and say, boy, I'm not sure I accomplished it. Well, if you were trying to accomplish it in your own strength, can I tell you this? You didn't. Whenever we attain to the peace of God in the body of Christ, it is because we're submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we're letting the Holy Spirit work in and through us. You see what it says there, right? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the what? Of the, actually we should say of the who? Of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We must allow the Holy Spirit to work and to rule and to lead in our lives. We have to submit to that Spirit's work. So that's where we stopped last week. Pretty stiff challenge, isn't it? All of those things, we put them all together, we go, oh man, I can't do that. Well, that's the first step, realizing that I can't. But Christ in me, with the Holy Spirit leading me, I can do that. And God is doing it in and through me. Don't lose hope. Verses 4 through 6 are going to give us the hope that we need to accept this challenge and to run the gauntlet of Christ-likeness, if you will. So, would you stand together with me? We want to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Read it from the screen, if you would. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Wow. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray and ask God to bless our time as we further look into his word this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come again before you this morning in prayer to ask your blessing upon our time in the word. We've worshipped you in song. We've worshipped you in prayer. Uh, now, Father, as we continue our worship, open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds that we may understand the truth of your word. Allow your spirit to teach us this morning so that when we leave, we'll be more like Jesus because we spent time together worshiping you in the word of God. Father, thanks again for your love for us. Amazing, magnificent, marvelous, matchless love that we sang about is on display right here in Ephesians chapter 4. Help us to understand it better today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What's the one word, the one word that stood out every time in that passage? You got it. One. 
There is several ones in our text this morning, um, but the ones are all, they all have the same thing in mind. You'll notice when they come up on the screen that they're all capitalized, at least that was my intent, okay? And the reason that they're all capitalized is because it has nothing to do with mankind. It has everything to do with what Christ has accomplished in and through us. So you might be thinking that we're going to talk about, when we talk about the one, you might be thinking that we're going to talk about people in this walk, but not really. We're not talking about people. Paul lists seven ones that will help us take up the challenge of Christ's likeness. And in fact, without these ones, the challenge is out of our reach. You know, sometimes we sit down and we watch a sporting event. I remember the first time we were in South Africa and we sat down and we, you know, I, as you know, I love to watch rugby. Okay, and when I was growing up, rugby, what was that? I mean, it was something that our gym teachers tried to help us understand, but never very successfully, okay? So um, when you think about rugby, we didn't play that game in America, but there was a rugby team. In fact, I remember watching the Springboks, which, were my, which was my favorite team, and I, kind of, I had a quandary when they played the Eagles. That's the name of the USA rugby team, the Eagles. How many people knew that? Yeah, nobody, because nobody knows that the USA has a rugby team, right, that actually competes in the World Cup, right? So we sit down and we watch this Springbok, which now they've won, uh, I think in the last uh, 10 years, they've won five Rugby World Cups, so they're, they're a pretty good rugby team, all right? Um, so here they are, they're playing against the USA, and what a joke that was. I mean, we got, and when I say we, I identify with the USA, uh, we got blown out. It wasn't even close, and I thought, man, that's embarrassing. But then some of my South African friends, hey, you know what? It's not that bad. We beat other teams worse than that. Okay. All right. So it was beyond the reach. The challenge for the, the Americans to play the spring box was beyond their reach. Now, I must tell you this. Again, if you don't follow rugby, you won't understand this. But there's regular rugby, there's 11 on a side. Okay. Um, and those 11 don't change out. They play the whole game. And once you're out of the game, you're out. There's no subbing. Okay, um, there's another game of rugby called sevens, all right, and that's a much shorter field, much faster paced game, um, still very, very physical, um, and America has actually won the sevens world championships a couple of times, okay, so when you talk about sevens rugby, America is very well respected in that game, but when you talk about 11, not so much. So as we think about this challenge being out of reach, we just, there's no way, and is, you know, that was like, well, how many years ago was that? Wow, that was a long time ago when we first watched the first USA rugby game. Um, but you know what? It's still out of reach. I mean, America maybe once in a while makes it past the first round of the World Cup. But they never get to the championship game that South Africa just won, by the way. So, you see, it's out of reach, it's out of touch, and they can't get there. That's what it is like trying to become like Christ outside of Christ. You can't get there. You can't reach it. Now, Paul goes on. He says, listen, here's the way you get there. Here's the help that you need. He says, there's one body. And you know what that body is? That body is the body of Christ. The body of Christ. We are the manifestation of Christ in the world today. What is the body of Christ? Us. To some degree, it's us right here in Preble, Calvary Baptist Church of Preble. 
We make up the body of Christ because we are believers. We know Jesus Christ as our Savior. But when Paul talks about the body of Christ here, he's not talking about the local church. He's not talking about the churches in Ephesus that he was writing to. He was talking about the universal body of Christ made up of all true believers from the day of Pentecost when, P- when Luke writes and says there were 5,000 added to the church and then a few days later there were another 5,000 added to the church and on and on and on. The church that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the body of Christ that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 4. The universal body of believers that make up the body of Christ. We are the manifestation of Christ in the world and we will continue to be that manifestation until Christ comes back and catches us up in the air and takes us home to be with him. We live in this age in which we call the church age. It is the body of Christ. We as believers of Calvary Baptist Church are supposed to or are a representation of the body of Christ today. When people look at us as believers, they see the body of Christ. So here's the question that we all must ask, and we must ask it regularly. When they see us, and I don't mean Calvary Baptist Church, I say when they see us as believers, do they see Christ? That's the body. There is one body, the body of Jesus Christ. How do you become part of that body? Well, part of that body, we're grafted in. What's the grafting process? Well, it starts with the blood of Christ on the cross of Calvary. If you're here this morning and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've accepted his work on the cross of Calvary, if you understand that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is the only means by which you can be brought into that body, and you've bowed your head before Almighty God, and you've confessed your sins, and you've asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, then you are indeed part of that body. But if you've never done that, you're not part of the body. You're outside of the body of Christ. One body. Our goal as believers are, is to help people understand and desire to be part of that body. To want to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We often invite people to come to our church, right? Hey, don't you want to come to Calvary Baptist Church? and uh, we, have a, we have a great time of worshiping God together. You, I think you'd be welcome. You, you want to come and be part of it. You and I. And can do that on a regular basis and should do that often. But you know what the most effective means of reaching others is? Is to live a consistent godly life before them. I was reading something, uh, might have even been yesterday, where it said, somebody shared it, said that, um, gave the percentage of people that come to church when they, when they get invited by the, by the pastor. You know how many people come to church because pastor invites them? About 5%. Several other things listed there. And then it says, but when you, not a pastor, just a attender or a member, when you invite somebody to come to church, you know what the rate goes up to? About 40%. Are you inviting? Because, I mean, you say, well, that's why we hired a pastor, right? Well... We had that conversation when you did hire us. But no, that's not why you hired me. 
My job is to train you, Ephesians, we'll get there, uh, to do the work of the ministry so that together we can do the work of the ministry and God can bless that work. But if you're not inviting people, then they're not coming. If I'm the only one inviting people, then only about 5% of the people that I invite come. And that might be less in Preble or Cortland or Tully or Homer or wherever. Um, but that's, that's, that's one thing that you and I can do. Every one of us, conversationally, invite people to be part of our church family. Encourage them. That's why we do these kinds of outreach events. That's why we do a Harvest Supper. And we say, hey, why don't you invite your friends to come to Harvest Supper? And if you weren't here, man, you missed some good smoked turkey, didn't they, Bonnie? See, it's our responsibility to get people to want to come and be part of the church. We do that by invitation, but more successfully, we do that when we live out Christ before them. And then, you know, here's, I'll say this quietly. It doesn't matter what church they go to as long as it's a church that preaches the truth. They don't come to Calvary, that's okay. But hopefully they're going someplace where the truth is preached and taught. So they're growing in their walk with the Lord. I used to be naive enough to think that the church I grew up in was the only church that preached the truth. (laughs) How naive was that? I was actually very proudful, boastful even. That's why I keep saying this book is the standard by which we live. And and if, if there's another church preaching that truth, preaching this book, then we ought to be praising God for them. I really appreciate uh, Dan Nichols, who's a pastor at Grace. He's often saying to me, Tim, we have no turf wars in the, in the kingdom of God. There's, there's, there's not, we're not fighting over people to come to our church. And that's a message he constantly communicates to the pastors in our area. What we need to do is preach the truth. And let, them go, let people go wherever they feel like God can use them most effectively. And we praise God for that. One body But the source of the truth, the information, the learning comes from the word of God. That has to be the key. If you're not preaching from the word of God, then you know what? I'm going to be really bold. I'm going to step really far out on the limb. If you're not preaching the truth of God's word, you are not communicating the body of Christ to others. And there's a whole host, and I'm not going to name names, but there's a whole host of people, you find them on the TV, you find them on the radio, that are building their own kingdom. And they're not building the kingdom of God. One body. Let's go on. One spirit. Boy, pastor, you've been talking about the Holy Spirit a lot these last couple of weeks. Yeah. The Holy Spirit. When he says one spirit, he's not talking about my spirit that lives within me. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that places you and I into the body of Christ. If he doesn't put us there, we don't get there. The Holy Spirit seals us. He guides us. He teaches us. He helps us live in this world as he permanently indwells us and gives us the ability to communicate truth to others and to live for his honor and for his glory. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says this. 
Starting with verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is your guarantee of everlasting life. Your guarantee of the inheritance of Jesus Christ in you. Walking worthy of the calling with which we are called is only possible because the Holy Spirit lives within us. You and I, we want to make sure that we are allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. You say, Pastor, doesn't that happen for every Christian? No, because later on we're going to get into the book of Ephesians where it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with which you were called. It's possible for us as children of God to grieve the Holy Spirit. Instead, though, we should submit to the Holy Spirit's leadership in our lives. So there's one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling. That word hope, it's an amazing word. In the world, it means one thing. From God's perspective, it means something totally different. I don't know how the Syracuse Orange did last night. <laughs> At the beginning of the season, I had lots of hope. 4-0. They're, they're going to win a lot of games this year. They're going to go to a bowl game. And I, I've had the privilege of going to most of their home games. But you know what? There wasn't a lot of hope in the Dome last week. I keep going on the internet, MLB, every every day or every other day, hoping to see that some big trade was pulled off for the Yankees. Not yet. Hadn't happened. Are they going to get Juan Soto? Are they going to sign Cody Bellinger? Are they going after this Japanese pitcher who's amazing? No word from the top. Changes are coming, changes are coming. And as Yankee fans, like, yeah, right. We hear that all the time and nothing happens. What's that? Trey Judge. Judge. He's the only valuable player on the team, right? So as we look at this, that there's, there's not a lot of hope in the things of the world. They start off really big, 4-0, 5-0, 10-0, But before long, they've got as many losses as anybody else. You can't put your hope in that. It's a wish. That's really what the hope of the world is. I wish this would happen. I wish that would happen. I wish such and such. The hope that we have in Christ is a knowledge. It's a knowing this is going to happen. Why? Because God said it was going to happen. We know it because it's in the pages of Scripture. The hope of your calling. What is the hope of our calling? Well, it's the hope of eternal life, of everlasting life, of future in heaven with God for all of eternity. It begins with the resurrection or the rapture and it continues with our becoming the bride of Christ, returning with him during the millennial reign and then having the privilege of spending forever with him. 1 John chapter 3 talks about it. You've heard me refer to verse 1 before, but let me read for you verses 1 through 3. It says this, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the apostle John, the the, the writer who was the disciple of love, the one who Jesus loved. He says this, 
Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Hallelujah, we're the children of God. But you know what the next word is in the verse? Therefore, because we are the children of God, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's another hallelujah, praiseworthy promise. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3 says, And everyone who has this hope, this hope, what's the hope? Becoming like Jesus, that's the hope. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Well, how do we get pure? You got it. Right here. This book. As we read it, as we study it, as we apply it, as we live in the Spirit, that book makes us pure. Because we're striving to be obedient to the teachings in the book that come from the one true God. We have one hope of our calling, one Lord. He goes on to say another, another one of the ones here, the seven ones is one Lord. Of course, referring to Jesus Christ. There's only one Jesus. You understand that there is only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. One Lord. There's not many ways. There's not many gods. There's not many Jesuses. When you get to heaven... And if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to be welcomed into heaven. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you were counting on some other way to get to heaven, you know what question God's going to ask you when you get there? He's going to say, what have you done with my son, Jesus Christ? And if you say, well, he was a good man, he was a good teacher, he was just one way, you know what God's going to say to you? Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. There is only one Lord. There's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one means of salvation. There's only one way to pay for the penalty of our sins. He is the one. Jesus is the one that blesses us with all the spiritual blessings that we've seen in chapters 1 through 3 so far in our study in the book of Ephesians. There's one Lord. There's one faith. You know what that faith is, right? Personal trust placed in Jesus Christ for salvation. We must believe the words of Jesus in John chapter 14 when he said this. He was talking to Thomas. Jesus said to him, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one can get, to G can get to the Father except through Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the door. Paul talked about this faith in chapter 2. We spent some time there a couple of weeks ago. He said this in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved, how? Through faith. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. That faith is not of yourselves. You didn't, drink, you didn't muster up the faith yourself. The faith came from God, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. One faith. And that faith is based on who God is. Believing that he's able to say, do what he says he will do and living our lives accordingly. One faith. He goes on, he says, one baptism. Oh, pastor, can you quit talking about that? No, because it's all throughout the scriptures. All throughout the church age. What is a child of God supposed to do after they get saved? What is it? Well, some of you know it, right? Some of you understand. That's what you're supposed to do. After you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your next step of obedience to, the, to God is to be immersed in water. And it comes after, you know, Jesus as your Savior. It can't come before because it doesn't mean anything for you before. It doesn't happen when you're a baby. It happens when you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's called believer's baptism, where you are committing to follow the ways of the Lord. You're making a statement to others that you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ no matter what the cost. This commitment is extremely helpful because it brings greater accountability to us. When you're baptized in a church, you are then saying, Hey, church family, help me walk the walk. Help me not just talk about it, but help me live for Jesus. We're making a public statement that then it's very difficult to turn back on. Because there's people who love you and are holding you accountable. And he closes the idea of these ones with one God and one Father. The one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. No doubt the greatest of these blessings is our salvation. He has given us salvation. As the sovereign God of the universe, he's the planner of our salvation. Not an afterthought. He planned it in eternity past. 1 John 4.14 says this. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Apostle John is writing, he's saying, I lived it out, I saw it, I, I walked for three years of my life every day with Jesus. We know that He is the Son of God. We know that the Father sent Him to the earth. We know that he was God in the flesh, incarnate, took on flesh that he might dwell among us, that he might bring us to a place where we understand he is God and he is the only means of salvation. We have seen it and we testify that the Father has sent the Son for the very purpose of being the Savior of mankind. Now if you look at these ones, I hope you've written them down on the back of your note page, um, you look at these ones, they're arranged in relation to each member of the Trinity. Verse 4 deals with the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 deals with Jesus Christ. And verse 6 deals with the Father. You know what that tells us? It tells us that our salvation is not possible outside the work of the triune Godhead. Does the Bible teach the Trinity? Absolutely! You're looking for one passage that talks about the Trinity of God, the triunity of God. It's right here in Ephesians chapter 4. You got the Spirit, you got the Son, and you got the Father. 
John MacArthur makes this comment. Our one God and Father, along with the Son and the Holy Spirit, is over all and through all and in all. That comprehensive statement points to the glorious, divine, eternal unity that the Father gives believers by His Spirit and through the Son. We are, get this, we are God-created, God-loved, God-saved, God-fathered, God-controlled, God-sustained, God-filled, and God-blessed. We are one people under one sovereign, overall, omnipotent, through all, and omnipresent in all God. Woo! That's pretty impressive. That's pretty amazing what God has done for us. From wealth to walk. You see what we have here in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6? We are, we are reminded that we have everything. Everything that we could ever possibly need to walk the walk. To walk worthy of the calling that God has called us to. As the children of God, Paul has issued us a challenge. And the question is, are you and I, are we up for the challenge? You know what? <laughs> I talked about a big game last week in the NFL. My team lost. I can make a case that the refs really stunk, but that's just an excuse. There's another game today. Probably not so important. Brandon's out with his family. I'd rib him a little bit. Cowboys are playing the Giants. <laughs> Giants or the, the Cowboys are 40-point favorites because the Giants are really bad this year. It's just, a, it's just the truth. It is. They're really, really bad. But you know what? It doesn't matter because every time the Giants play the Cowboys, they're always up for it. It's a division rivalry doesn't matter how bad one team is and how good the other team is. It's always, they're always at each other. They're always playing for the, it's, the, it's like those two, that's their Super Bowl for the year. They get up for it. And if the Giants play well and the Cowboys take it too lightly, they could win. You got to go in prepared. You got to go in ready. You and I need to be prepared. And that's what Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 does. It prepares us to walk the walk. It prepares us for the life that God has called us to live. Paul's throwing down the gauntlet to walk like Christ in lowliness of mind, meekness, growing together in the unity of, the, of Christ's body. How can we respond? It's a tough challenge. Don't make light of it. It's a tough challenge for sure. But as we have seen from the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4, we have the help of the triune Godhead at our disposal. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working together, working in us and through us to help us take up the challenge and to live for Christ. God wants us to walk worthy of the calling, and he's given us everything necessary to do that. Now we need to have the desire to want to walk in that worthy reminder. Let me, let me share something with you, another song. You know me, I love songs. Um, and it's probably a good thing that I can't sing them because I would want to sing them all instead of read them all to you, okay? 
But here we go. Um, the song, uh, we were at a Mercy Me conference, concert a couple, of months, a couple of weeks ago, and they sang this song. It's on the new album, All Because of Mercy. It goes like this. I could stand here and try to tell you, I found my way here on my own. Brought to life this heart of stone, made up my own mind to change my own life, working on my own way to good as if anybody could. But the truth is, I've been broken since my very first breath. Wow. And the truth is, I've been wandering since my very first step. I know the only reason I can stand here unashamed is not because I'm worthy. It's all because of mercy. There's no way that I could earn it. Praise God, my debt is paid. It's not because I'm worthy. It's all because of mercy. I still remember the day he found me, six feet under all my shame. I heard him call me out by name. Hallelujah, the cross has spoken. Jesus, my Savior, bled and died to bring his, this dead man back to life. I know the only reason I can stand here unashamed is not because I'm worthy. It's all because of mercy. There's no way that I could earn it. Praise God, my debt is paid. Just as desperate for you now as I was back then, if I ever should be forget, remind me once again. Just as desperate for you now as I was back then, if I ever should forget, remind me once again. I know the only reason I can stand here unashamed is not because I'm worthy. It's all because of mercy. The reason we serve God, not because we're, not because we're better than anybody else. It's because of the mercy of God that called us, placed us into the family of God, and set us out to live for him so others will know about this mercy that he has given to us. It's all because of God's great mercy. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for all that you've given to us in Christ. Through his death on the cross of Calvary, you have made us heirs with Jesus Christ, your Son. Joint heirs in the family of God. Father, would you help us to take all of the wealth that we have in you and turn that into <coughs> gratitude for all that you have done which will compel us to then serve you with our life that you have given to us. Father, it's not because we're worthy but because of your mercy. Thank you for the mercy that you have displayed through your son on the cross. Help us to be communicators of that mercy on a regular basis. Father, thank you for answering Ben's prayer as we started this morning to help me make it through the sermon. Uh, you did that. And I want to give you glory for that as well. Thank you again for your love. Blessings you give to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.